our study leader, Dr. Dave Wordson, invites us to open our Bibles to Luke chapter 2, verses 21 through 40, where we can join Mary and Joseph as they take their eight-day-old son to the temple. In the temple that day, two senior citizens recognized the true identity of the baby, and now each of us must decide. Can Jesus be treated as only another religious symbol for love? Was he just another prophet? Or is he God's only promised Messiah? You know, as believers, we don't have to just go from one holiday to the next. Because Jesus wants to walk with us all the way through everyday life. Incredibly, in the Gospels, the record doesn't just stop with Jesus being born it doesn't just end with the announcement to Mary and the birth of Jesus and then the coming of the shepherds. The gospel goes on, and that's what we're going to try to do. We're going to try to go on and look at what the gospel accounts say about our dear Lord Jesus. One of the commitments that I have as a pastor is there's all kinds of voices. You can learn psychology during the week. You can learn how to educate your kids during the week. You can learn a lot of things. You can learn about your health. You can learn about exercise. When we come together on Sunday morning, we need to learn about our Lord. I don't think there's ever been more powerful, effective teaching in the church than there is today. And yet I'm amazed at how believers can be present in a church for years and they don't know the meaning, what God has for them, in some of, the, some of the very open accounts, that if I were to ask him, do you remember Simeon? Do you remember Anna? They kind of scratch their head and say, oh yeah, yeah, back there somewhere, I remember there was Simeon and Anna. The account that we want to look at today kind of gets covered up by the Christmas story because it's eight days after Jesus was born and it's after the shepherds have come, after the shepherds have gone. And we're going to go to a dedication ceremony and a circumcision ceremony, which in our culture, as most of us are Gentiles, it's not that major a social event. But as we open our Bibles to Luke chapter 2, we're exposed to the Lord Jesus as an infant. And we get a profound insight into the kind of a family that he was raised in. We want to begin with this to look at the Jewishness of Jesus. I want you to recognize as a group of believers that you cannot have the idea that Jesus is a nice symbol for Gentiles. Jews can worship whoever they want to. They can have their religion. If you do that, you've lost the scriptural message. You've lost reality. Because the only Jesus that is genuinely there is a Jewish Jesus. He was born into a Jewish family. And if any account makes that clear, it's in Luke chapter 2, verse 21. It says, On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise him, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he had been conceived. If you were born into a Jewish family, this would be a very significant ceremony. The entire family gathers together. You call a special representative, a special rabbi, and he comes. And on the eighth day, the male child is circumcised. And in that act, you would be acting out traditions that have gone on literally now for thousands of years. 
You see, way back, 2000 B.C., Abraham was commanded by God in Genesis 17 to circumcise his sons on the eighth day, to cut their foreskins. And that was a symbol of cleansing. It was a symbol that this boy was a set-apart child. He was a member of God's chosen people. He was a member of the race that one day, the nation that one day would bring the promised anointed one into the world. When the children of Israel became enslaved in Egypt and for 400 years they lived under oppression. For 400 years they were a, a fallen people, a people that were discouraged, a people that were oppressed. And then God sent a great deliverer. Circumcision was the mark that set those people apart. When Moses went down into Egypt to deliver the people, they were there. They were still a distinct people. They were still a people that were set apart from the Egyptians. There was no way they could be just amalgamated in with the Egyptians because the Jews were the special covenant people. And they had continued to act out these traditions, the ceremony of circumcision. Now, as believers in the New Testament, we don't have to follow out that tradition of the law. We don't have to follow that tradition because the New Testament talks about a new covenant that has transcended the old covenant. But the New Testament talks a great deal about the need for spiritual circumcision, for the need to have hearts that are clean, for the need to have hearts that are pure. And we need to be communicating to our children the same strategic lesson. If you're a child of God, if you have accepted Christ as your Savior, if you have had the privilege of being born into a family where mom and dad honor Christ, and at a very early age you respond to that message, then you're a significant person. Little boys, the reason you can't just use your body flippantly, the reason you can't just do things secretly that your, your conscience bothers you about because even when you're little, you intrinsically know that somehow that's not right to use your body like that. And as you grow into adolescence and you go through the development sexually, the reason that our kids must be pure is that they're not just normal people. They're not just run-of-the-mill human beings. They're not just average people. They are the chosen ones. They are the sons and the daughters of God. The most powerful motivation for purity is the value that you have in being a child of God. And spiritual circumcision testifies to all of that. And dads, I appeal to you, from the time your kids are little tiny, they need to start to have these traditions taught to them by you. They need to see you believing in those traditions. They need to see you having a circumcised heart. Mom, the same thing for you. The most powerful influence you have over the kids is the reality of your own life. And the reason Mary and Joseph took Jesus to the temple to be circumcised is they were a man and woman, a man and wife under the old covenant that not legally, not just in an external way, but because they were committed to it 
It was the essence of their life. They took their son to the temple and he was circumcised. 33 days later, which would complete the uncleanness period of a woman after she'd given birth to a child. You see, God reminded every time a Jewish child was born, God reminded his people, you're unclean. It wasn't that the woman was inferior. In fact, it's interesting in the account here, it says after the period of their uncleanness, which possibly is including Joseph in that uncleanness, or maybe including Jesus in the uncleanness, which would indicate that we're not talking about a moral uncleanness. We're not talking about an inferior value here. So none of the men here can say, well, you women are more unclean than we are. But the Lord, through these ceremonies, and what we call ceremonial uncleanness, where a woman for 40 days could not go into the presence of God in the temple in the sense of bringing a sacrifice. She had to stay away from the presence of God. And for 33 days after the circumcision, she needed to stay in this ceremonially unclean state. But then on the 40th day, there'd be a great celebration. And the husband and wife would come together and they would offer a lamb if they were wealthy. Or in the case of Mary and Joseph, they would offer a turtle dove, a couple pigeons, if they were poor. And by doing so, they would be purified of their uncleanness. The woman would be free to worship again. Now, why did God give this reminder of uncleanness? Because we are a sinful race. We're born in sin. It's not that the act of conception is sinful. The scripture is very clear that that is not. But the scripture is also very clear that we are born alienated from God. We're born enemies. We're born with a messed up nature. We're born in Adam. And God would remind his people of uncleanness. The whole Old Testament law is a constant uncleanness, uncleanness. And you keep having to try to do things to be clean, but you get clean for a little bit and then you're unclean again. Which gives you this yearning for a final bath, a yearning for a final cleansing. And Mary and Joseph, when they came after 33 days of the temple that day for the dedication, came with the one sacrifice, the one child that could forever make us clean, that could ever deal with this problem of not being able to stand free before God and cleanse before God. And so we read in verse 22, when the time of her purification according to the law of Moses, I want you to notice how Jewish Mary and Joseph are, according to the law of Moses, the act of circumcision, according to the law of Moses, all the way through chapter 2, it's emphasizing the Jewishness and the obedience of this couple. When the law of Moses, when the days of the purification had been fulfilled, Joseph and Mary took Jesus to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Does that little phrase, or does this symbol of bringing your firstborn and presenting him to, at the temple to the Lord, does that remind you of anybody? They bring him to the temple to present their firstborn to the Lord. Who's that sound like? Samuel, it does. It sounds a lot like Samuel. Hannah, in fact, we're going to have one of our witnesses today is going to be Anna, which is the, the Greek equivalent of Hannah from the Old Testament, or it really would be in the Old Testament, Hannah, 
And I guess the Greeks would take a little bit of the H off the front there. Not so much <laughs> like that, but Anna, kind of like what we might say, okay? So there's a little bit of reminder of that. And I think that that's all mixed up in this account. I think that Luke wants us, if we know our scriptures, to put all that together. I, want, I think he wants us to think, first of all, of the need for the firstborn to be redeemed. In Israel, every firstborn child belonged to the Lord because they would be reminded of the Exodus. Remember the death angel passed over? And if you had the blood on the door, the firstborn did not die, but they lived. But forever after, the Lord declared to the Israelites that the firstborn child belonged to, to God. And the way that they redeemed that first child is that they went to the temple, like Mary is doing here, they offered a sacrifice, and the Levites would take the place in serving God in the temple that this firstborn would have to do. So we have the idea of bringing Jesus to the temple. He is redeemed as the firstborn. And we're reminded of Hannah, who instead of redeeming her firstborn child, she dedicated him completely to the service of God. And when Samuel came of age, she brought Samuel to the temple as just a little boy, and instead of redeeming him, she offered him to God fully as a dedication. In our own church family, I think one of the significant things that we do, it's not because we have to do it, because we're not under the law. We don't have any code that tells us on the 40th day after the birth of a male child, we need to bring that child and dedicate them to the Lord and also redeem them as the firstborn. One of the things we do in our church family is to bring a child before our church join together and have a mom and dad commit themselves to raising that child in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. But I think under the new covenant that it's very important that all of us come to the place where we come to the temple of God again, where we come to the presence of God again and we present ourselves, not mom and dad, not any adult, but willingly and freely from the depths of our being, we present ourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And you're not going to be happy as a believer until you do that. You're not going to really be fulfilled as a believer. You see, this Jesus stuff is not just an escape program to get you down the fire escape out of hell into heaven. Christianity is miserable when it's a fire escape. It's got to be everything. I talked to you a few weeks ago about how our gathering together on Sunday morning should be a unique, intense training time for you to interact together on how to be a believer in the marketplace. I told you yesterday about my friend who began this company. I met with my friend a couple years before he did that. He was in his 60s. He had already made more money than I could imagine, more money than I could ever need, so he didn't have to do anything for money, which is a unique thing in life. But he'd run out of gas. He'd run out of gas. You see, some of you are living for a dream that you'd like to make tons of money so you wouldn't have to work. And you pour yourself into that. Well, here's someone that already accomplished that. And I spent hours and hours and hours on this trip trying to pray with him, 
and having him share with me, trying to find a new direction. He could have just retired, just gone and played golf in Florida, but he didn't. In his 60s, he went down to South America. And he saw hundreds of young people in South America that were just sleeping on mats, just sleeping on the floor, eating rice and beans and anything else they can find. But they had a passion to reach South America for Christ. And in the midst of these meetings with these young people, with those young people, those third world young people, speaking to his heart, the Lord said, I want you to make a lot of money. He said, what do I need a lot of money for? I've already got a lot of money. He said, I want you to make a lot of money for these kids. I want you to make a lot of money in the United States so that these third world kids can have enough to eat and clothes in their backs and places to live so that they can freely go into South America, everywhere in that nation where Spanish is spoken and be taught. And we've spent a lot of time trying to talk about how do you build a direct sales business on Christian standards. Now that's tough. Because almost every one of you have been exposed to direct sales that have been a big con. But Mary and I had the privilege of hearing this man get up before his associates from all over the United States. And he gave his testimony. And he shared, he said, we're not asking you in this business to be believers. You can believe whatever you want to. It's a free country. But as the chairman of the board of this company, I want you to know where I'm coming from. I want you to know what I believe. I want you to know what my whole life is committed to. And he proceeded to tell his life story of how he came to Christ. He told all that audience, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That's what it means to present your body as a living sacrifice. Is it easy to do that? My friend came by earlier before he did it and said, Dave, really pray for me. And Mary said, what, does he want you to pray? Are you going to pray today? I said, no, he wants me to pray for him. Why? Because I know myself, when I'm going to go into a secular marketplace and the challenge is going to be there, will I witness for my Lord or will I not? It's tough. Now, if our bodies are totally dedicated to the Lord... If our bodies are totally dedicated to the Lord, then business people are going to speak like that if they're committed to the Lord. You say, well, Dave, I might lose my job. You might. But you see, the alternative is horrible. If you stay silent, which involves just letting everything go, then another philosophy dominates your company. There's no voice for truth. There's no voice for reality. We're not talking about preaching or cramming something down anyone's throat. We're talking about dedication. We're talking about being genuine. Every guy or girl that you work with is dedicated. They all are. They believe things. And it comes up in your company every day. What do you believe? What do I believe? And that's what we need to recapture. I think there would be an unbelievable outpouring of the Spirit of God if we went out into the marketplace and were just humble, truthful witnesses to the reality of what Jesus means to me. That's what it means to be totally dedicated. And it needs to happen not just here, but out there. Because it happens out there. 
Jesus is the light of the world, not just a light to be hidden under a bushel. All right? Now you say, well, Dave, why should I risk my job for that? Why should I, why should I believe that? Because first of all, Jesus said he'll provide all of your needs according to his riches and glory. If you lose one job because of your witness for Christ, I'm not talking about losing your job because you're a lousy worker. But I promise you, if you lose your job because you're witness for Christ, the Lord will use that as a stepping stone for something much more fulfilling. Not necessarily easier, not necessarily more money, but it will be more in tune with what will build your character in Christ. The truth of the matter is, most of you won't lose your job. In fact, what I've observed, we started out, you came to know Christ, you started believing in Him, you started testifying for Him, and rather than losing your jobs, you've done nothing but go up. We start out with a working congregation, and you crazy guys start going up, and you start becoming white-collar workers. Why? Because your bosses say, well, man alive, if the guy believes in Christ, maybe he's going to be honest. And the guy doesn't drink his whole paycheck away Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. If I hire this construction superintendent, he'll be there Monday because he'll be awake and he won't be sleeping off a drunk. So you get jobs. You get opportunities. But even if you don't, it's worth being totally dedicated to him. And I pray that as moms and dads and with our kids and everything, we'll come to the temple, come to the presence of God. And spiritually, we're not under the law, but freely and willingly come to God and present ourselves completely as a sacrifice. It's not easy to do that. I want you to pray for us. You see, we need, to, we need to dedicate all of our activities. We need to take this message into the world. I'm so thankful for some of you men and women that drag me out of my Christian ghetto and get me into the pagan world. Because that's where the light needs to shine. You say, Dave, why should I believe it? I want to share something that's in the next few minutes that's really built me up this week. You know, one of the big questions you're going to have to decide in life is who do you trust? Who do you believe in? And when I was younger, there was lots of things. I think I believed, uh, like a real sharp intellectual that had about three PhDs, I believed strongly in them when I was at college. I mean, it was very impressive when I was in college if a guy had about three PhDs and he spoke very eloquently and he could tell me all the journal articles that dealt with a certain subject and I really bought that. I mean, that was really with it. I've gone through another period of my life where I'd really listen maybe to guys that made a lot of money that were very successful in business or women that were really successful in business. Um, I've also, when I was younger, I listened to a lot of kids, maybe kids that were a couple years older than I was. I thought they knew everything. All of you can probably identify with that a little bit. Think back over your life and think about the authorities that you have believed. I also want you to think about some of the things they told you that proved not to be true. You see, I can remember some things that maybe a really sharp intellectual told me when I was 20 in a college classroom. I know they're not true. I know that they argued brilliantly. I know that they quoted me all the journal articles, but it wasn't true. More mature thinking, living a little bit more life, has shown me that what they taught me in certain areas wasn't true. And all of you can identify with that. You've all had authorities tell you things that prove not to be true. Now I'm learning something. I want all of you to listen to this. If you find somebody that's gray-headed, like if they're in their 80s, 
like 84, 85. You know, as young people, it's going to be really easy for you to check some of those people off. In fact, some of us as younger people check people off when they're in 65. We have the idea, well, man, they're not going to, they don't have anything to contribute to society. Who are they? Beware of that thinking. That's stupidity. If you find someone that's elderly, that's lived a lot of years, and they've lived close to God, and they can talk to you about a life that they lived consistently for God, and they can share with you those experiences, you better believe what they tell you. Get them to tell you what to live for, where the traps are, where the dangers are. Now you say, Dave, you've been telling us about totally putting our life on the altar, having a spiritual dedication, even risking our jobs and our lives over that. Why should we do that? Because it's true. I want to just burn it into your very soul. What we believe is true. I'm not just telling you about truth that works for me, and because it works for me, therefore it must be true, and you're going to have other people that have truths that work for them, and it'll be true for them. I want to promise you, one day, we will gather together before the Son of God, and we'll all join hands together, and it'll be true. Now that's incredible. One day, you're going to be in the very presence of God. You don't need to be afraid of death. You don't need to be afraid of sin separating you from God's love. You don't need to be terrified about what might be in the, in the world beyond because Jesus is true. Say, so Dave, how do I know? Because there's two precious old people that if they lied, then Hitler should be made a saint. Because if these two people lied, then there's no way to know about human nature. You see, when Mary brought little baby Jesus into the temple, there was a very elderly man. And the elderly man had a precious promise from God. You see, he knew he wouldn't die until a special moment took place. Look at the story of this man here in Luke chapter 2, verse 25. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem, a Jewish person living in the capital religious city called Simeon. Let's look first of all at his character. He was righteous. He was a man that lived devoutly according to the commands of God. And he was devout. He was waiting for the comfort of Israel, the consolation of Israel. The word that's used of the Holy Spirit. He will send a comforter. And oh, how Israel needed a comfort. Israel in the first century was under the yoke of Rome. They were in terrible bondage. They were experiencing suffering, which most of us of Americans have never known, because as Americans, we don't know what it's like to be an oppressed, enslaved people under the yoke of Rome, because we are the powerful nation, and we're the ones that hold our heads up high. But Israel in the first century was under this terrible yoke of bondage. But Simeon was waiting for the comfort. I think some of us need comfort. I think some of us need to have a great consoler come into your life and into our lives. Simeon was an old man that lived all of his life waiting for God to send the comfort, for God to send the consolation that would bring peace to his people. 
Now the Holy Spirit was upon him. So this man was righteous, he was devout, he was waiting for the great comfort of his people, and the Holy Spirit of God rested upon him. He was an Old Testament prophet, just like Samuel had the Holy Spirit upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord God's answer, the Lord's God anointed one, the final David. That's the idea. The moment happened. Moved by the Spirit, he's being controlled by the Spirit on this day. He went into the temple courts at just the right time, at just the right moment. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and he praised God saying, I'm sure Mary just about flipped her lid. Have you ever just had a stranger? Um, a mother has had her baby for just 40 days and she's coming in to dedicate him and she walked into the temple. There's all these people around and this elderly man comes and takes the baby from her. But this was a precious, precious moment. Don't miss, don't read the Bible without living in it. This is one of the special moments. Mary, the mother of Jesus, Joseph, his adopted father here on earth. And this precious elderly Old Testament saint grabs the baby and Mary doesn't grab him away saying, oh, you old people can't handle those babies. Simeon could handle this baby fine. And notice what he said. He says this, Sovereign Lord, and when old people begin to pray like this, listen very carefully. Sovereign Lord. It takes a lifetime to really learn that God is sovereign, that he's in control, that he's supreme, and that he keeps his promise. As you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. You know, I would pray that every one of you could pray with Simeon when it's time. Lord, dismiss your servant in peace. Now, that little phrase to me is not just an ancient phrase of a Simeon. Mrs. Wood has had a difficult life. She's not perfect. But Mrs. Wood knows the Savior. She believed in Christ. She's testified to me of that. She had a heart attack earlier this week, and part of my responsibilities is that I go into an intensive care room, and the monitor's going, and right then it's strong, but who knows how long it'll be strong. And I grab an elderly lady's hand, and she says, I've had this happen so many times with members of our church family that know Christ. She'll grab my hand, and she'll say, you know, Dave, the other day I thought I was going to be gone but I was peaceful. And I want you to know that I wasn't afraid. And I'm sitting there inside saying, man, I'm afraid. Death scares a willy out of me. I don't want to have a heart attack, but I want to share with you. Here's someone, I mean, this is, I'm not making stories up. I live this. You can live it too. You're going to have to go through these experiences in life. And I just want to share with you that's why we need to get excited about Jesus because I don't know anybody else I could talk to people about that I can grab their hand in intensive care and they can look at me right in the eye and say, if I'm dismissed, if the Lord calls this life's dismissal and takes me home, it's peace.
Not saying you won't be afraid, but all children, young people, you're going to need that. Right now when you're young, you just run away. You think you'll live forever. You won't. And Jesus is the only person you can live with your whole lifetime, like Simeon. Have the Holy Spirit in your life, and you can say, okay, God, when it's time, dismiss me in peace. Only a born-again believer can look death in the face and say it is well with my soul. You, Hefner, had all the money in the world, but death was a terror. And a humble Old Testament saint like Simeon had probably no money. But he said, okay, God, you fulfilled your promise. You gave the Redeemer, and you let me see him. And now that I've seen him, I can go in peace. And oh, how I pray every one of you can say, I've seen him. Therefore, I can go in peace when it's God's time. I've seen the Savior. I've opened my heart to him. The great consoler, the great comforter has come into me. Simeon goes on, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you've prepared in the sight of all the people. You see what I want you to do? I want these realities to get so much a part of your life that you're going to get a hunger to take this Jesus into your office, into your schools, into everywhere you go. There's tears welling up in some of your eyes. Because you have that comfort. You have that peace. Well, the Lord hasn't taken us home yet. He didn't prepare this salvation just in the hearts of the people that already know Christ. He says he prepared it for all people. That's why we need to be in our town and in our offices. Because God wants this salvation to be present for all the people. And not all the people have heard yet. Not all the people understand yet. And I need to get a hold of that. And so do you. Simeon goes on. A light of revelation for the Gentiles. The only light that can reveal what's beyond to the Gentiles. About how to be acceptable to God about how to know God in a personal way, about how to have your sins forgiven, and for the glory to your people Israel. No agreement in the Middle East will solve Israel's problem. Only Jesus can do that. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said, and then Simeon blessed the dear child. And he said to his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel, and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. I want you to see this final phrase. You'll have to look for yourself at Anna. And I want all you ladies to look at Anna because the Lord puts great premium upon your life as a woman. And one of the credible witnesses to the Messiah was an elderly woman, Hannah, who to testify to everybody around that this was the promised Messiah. And Mary saw all this happening and she pondered it and pondered what was happening. But I want you to see this final phrase in closing. Jesus would call, cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and he would reveal the hearts. I believe Jesus is still doing that. And I want all of you to recognize that if anyone is sitting here today and you haven't opened your heart to Jesus, I'm going to tell you why you haven't opened. You might not open your heart to Jesus 
or you might not believe in him because you don't understand yet, because you haven't heard the message clearly yet. You don't understand the significance of Christ dying for you. You don't understand the reality that he rose again from the dead. And you need more information. You need more insight into the objective historical realities of what Jesus Christ has done. Some of my friends that were at that place that kept on coming and kept exposing themselves to the word. Some of them have gone home after hearing a message on Sunday morning and read all the way through like the Gospel of John. And the Lord has given them that information. Because their heart wanted to know what was true. They wanted to know what was reality. And if you want to know what's reality, you'll eventually come to the ultimate savior of reality, Jesus. But if you're sitting there today and you're saying, ah, oh, this doesn't mean anything. It's just a big hoax. It's just a big lie. It's just another religious thing. Or if you sit there and go, ah, you know, sure, that's nice. Then you know what's wrong? Your heart is wrong. It's a moral problem. You see, that's what it means the hearts of many will be laid bare. You see, I can remember a, a brilliant Jewish novelist that I love to read. And he understands Protestantism very well, I can tell from his novels. And he'll explain the gospel, but he rejects it. And I remember when I was younger, I would think, you know, boy, it's such a confusing issue. 2,000 years have garbled it so much up for the Jew. How could he ever understand? But now he's a very old man and he wrote one of his last novels. When I read it, I, could, I had to put it down because it was so dirty. It was so immoral. And what I realized is that this man understood very well what the claims of Christ were. And he chose to mock that name. He went out of his way to curse the name of Jesus. He went out of his way to, 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 to almost mock immorality. And the Lord Jesus began to speak to me, David, there's a tremendous struggle going on. And of many people that don't come to me, it's not your struggle. You're just with me as a tool. But it's an intense, very deep spiritual warfare. And it has to do with whether you're going to believe the truth. Whether you really want to be delivered. Some of, some of your associates won't come to Christ. And you say, why not? You might need to clear up and give them more information. But you've also got to recognize that the reason some of them aren't coming to Christ is they want to keep on sinning. They don't want to put themselves under the cleansing renewing powerful influence of Christ. Be honest about that. Appeal to them in a loving way. Don't make yourself out as being better than them. Don't try to be a con artist, but be a man or woman of truth. And if you'll just simply tell the story, the reality of Jesus, you know what will happen? The hearts of many will be laid bare. You see, what a person decides about Jesus decides where their heart is. Some of you in business, you have associates. Some of you are leaders in business. And maybe when I talk to you about my friend that stood up at a sales convention for 600 of his employees, he stood up and gave his testimony. Maybe some of you need to do that. A lot of you have offices. 
Maybe the Lord wants you to get some good Christian publications, tracts, maybe some information and, that you can just put there in, there in the office that people can read. Some, some good magazines like Moody Monthly that you can put there in your office. One of my, one of my believing friends who has an office plays gospel music in his office all day long. And that wasn't an easy thing to do. He wondered how would his patients react to that. But he said, I don't care. It's what I believe. It's what I am. It's my practice. I want to honor my Lord. And the Lord's opened some marvelous opportunities for witness. Let's pray the Lord will help us to have that kind of strength. There's some housewives here who have neighbors that live just across the street that we need to develop friendships with. We need to be an open people. I find sometimes it's harder to do that with our neighbors than it is with going to Argentina. I think a lot of you are that way. Let's pray as we rub shoulders with fellow parents in school, all over the place, that we will be witnesses of the Savior. And I want you to thank the Lord for the testimony of Simeon and Anna. These two godly Israelites could not be wrong. They properly identified who the true anointed one from God is. You can give your life for the truth of that reality. That's why we need to dedicate our lives completely to it. Father, use the life of Christ and this story that often gets covered up by the more exciting stories of the coming of the wise men that we'll look at that happened when Jesus was a little bit older, of the coming of the shepherds, of Mary and Joseph, the announcement of the angels. Lord, this story about his circumcision and his purification, I pray, Father, that by your Holy Spirit's power that this story would forever now be ingrained on the hearts of your people. I pray that they'll never be able to read Luke chapter 2 again without having your spirit remind them of some very important realities. The reason that Luke included this account to prove to us, to give two authentic, elderly, godly Jewish witnesses that Jesus was truly your gift, your Messiah. In the mouth of two or three witnesses, a matter is established. Because it's established, help us to go out and proclaim it on the housetops. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.